Thank you so much for joining us for today's podcast. We'll get started in just a moment. If this is your first time here, please consider subscribing so that you may stay up to date with the latest podcast. And if our podcast brings value to your life, please consider sharing it with family and friends. Thanks for listening. And now here's today's podcast. Thanks for joining us for the Covenant Living Broadcast with Pastor John Butler of Covenant Life Church, located at 130 Atlantic Avenue in Bremen, Georgia. Let's get into the Word. If you've got your Bibles today, uh, we're going to be in the book of John, John chapter 15. John 15. And I'm going to read out of the English Standard Version, but if your version is different, that's A-OK. You'll see there's a reason why I chose this one. Uh, Some versions use different words, right? And there's different ways that different authors and different translations or interpretations portray the message. Some are more word for word. Some are more thought for thought. This one with the ESV was more to the point of what I wanted to communicate and convey to you this morning. So we're going in John chapter 15, the first 11 verses, and this is what it says. It says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. So here Jesus is getting really clear. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, here's the promise, here's the benefit, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Another command, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, this is how you abide in his love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that, you, uh, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full." I've thrown a lot at you. Let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Father God, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that it is alive just as much now as it was thousands of years ago, God. And I pray for conviction, encouragement, and a higher calling and purpose in this house today, that as I speak, it would be your voice. As we analyze your word, that we'd come to a greater understanding of who you are, your love, your character, your graciousness, and your goodness, God. And I pray that we would leave here changed with a deeper appreciation and understanding of who you are in our lives. God, we thank you and praise you for all things, and we pray your blessing over this service. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Excellent. So I have always loved Christmas. And I know, like I said, we threw, I threw a lot at you, abide, out the wazoo, and we're going to get there. But I'd be remiss, we've got all the decorations still up, I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you that I've always loved Christmas. In fact, when I first met the executive vice president of HR for the company where I work, he said, I want you to tell me something that no one else knows. Give me a random fact. And I said, my exact response was, it's never too early to listen to Christmas music. And look, I'll concede to the fact that it was probably not the smartest first impression that I could have made with the man, but that's what I said. And I stand by it. I love listening to Christmas music. I listen to it pretty much year-round. And I think the reason is because it puts me in a good mood. It sort of fixes my mind on some things that are different. 
right? When life's going tough, I'll turn on some Christmas music and it just centers me. Why? Because there's so much hustle and bustle in the world. And I, I know there's hustle and bustle to the Christmas season too. There's places to go and people to see. And I know for us this week, we've had something every night since Wednesday. But then there's Christmas Day and time just slows down. And maybe that's a different day for you around this time, but for me, it's always Christmas Day. The kids wake up. I've got a five-year-old and a seven-year-old. They wake up incredibly early, terribly early, but it's the only day of the year that I actually don't mind. Any other day of the year, I'm like, go back to bed. But this year, I'm like, yeah, come in bed. Let's all snuggle. Wait till your brother wakes up, and we'll go open presents. So we go out there, and we open presents, and we brew coffee, and we make breakfast, and then, well, there's nowhere to go. And so time drags on in the most amazing way possible, and you have all this time with the people that you love. And and it's this, this sort of moment that I enjoy and this moment that I love because you get to do all of these things, but the reality is that eventually the day has to end. Right? The time can only slow down. It can't stop. We can't just pause it and say, all right, I want to sit here and this mess of wrapping paper for the rest of my life. No, time continues to move forward. So it only slows down. It doesn't end. We, we pause for the cute family photo, right, where everyone's in their Christmas PJs and we're smiling. We eat our delicious meal. But when the tryptophan wears off, we've woken from our turkey comas, and the dads have put together all the presents and all the toys without instructions, I might add, And the moms have regaled us with stories of Christmas's past. We've got to get back to life, right? I mean, the fact that we're here today, we're fortunate to be able to have church today. But after church, maybe there's things you've got to do. So this is indicative of the fact that, yeah, we can't stay in this moment forever. We've got to return to life as we know it. Stores that only close one day a year reopen. And we've got errands to run because, as Pastor John said last week, the world keeps turning. And life keeps going no matter what the calendar says. It's just, it's the bitter truth. It's the bitter pill we have to swallow. But my question for you today is, well, how do we make the moment last? How can we make the moment last? How do we hold on to the Christmas spirit and that, that joyful anticipation and excitement for as long as we can? And so that's the name of my message today. And that's what we're going to be talking about is capturing the moment capturing the moment, right? So we're capturing the moment in, in, our, in the photos that we take. But how do we forget the craziness that comes before the photo and the craziness that undoubtedly comes after the photo and stay in that moment for as long as possible? To have that Christmas season attitude, again, that joy, that appreciation, and that abiding in Christ's presence all year round. And so when we look back at the Christmas account, I want to show you where this is. There's a biblical sort of foundation for maintaining this attitude of the, I guess the hyper-focused on Christ year-round. It's not something, right, we say, okay, if Valentine's Day is the only day where you ever tell your spouse you love him or her, it's probably not going to go well for you. Likewise, Christmas should not be the only day that we fixate and focus on Jesus. Amen? So there should be something in us that says the other 364 days ought to be just as focused, just as fixated, just as joyous as the one that we celebrated yesterday. And there's a biblical foundation for this, and I want to show you. So if you go back and you look at the Christmas story, and the Christmas account, it's not a story, I apologize, and you look at the events that were told in Luke 1 and Matthew 1, you'll see something interesting. Everything before the birth of Christ is anticipatory language. It's future tense. 
And everything after the birth of Christ is exalting language, praising language. And I want to show you. We're not going to actually go there, but I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version and, and show you. So in Luke 1, we see the angel appear to Mary. And he, he, the angel appears to Mary, and this is what he says. He says things like, you will conceive and give birth. You will name him Jesus. He will be very great. The Lord will give. His kingdom will never end. It's all future tense. It's anticipatory language, looking forward to something. All right? And then in Matthew chapter 1, which is sort of the mirror account to Luke's, we see the angel appear again, this time to Joseph, and he says things like, she will have, you are to, he will save. Anticipatory future tense language. And so after these encounters, after Jesus is born, what do the people do? Do they return to their normal lives? Yes, but not without being changed. We, we fast forward a little bit and we look at Luke chapter 2 and it says the shepherds return to their flocks, but this time they're not just out there ho-hum doing their shepherd thing. It says, no, they're glorifying and praising God for all they'd seen and heard. It now shifts from anticipatory language to exalting language, putting something, lifting something to a place of high position and power in our lives. There has to be a response. We then see later on in Luke chapter 2, the family is going into, into the temple and they're, they're greeted by Simeon. And so we see not one but two prophecies over the baby Jesus. The first by Simeon who says, he talks about Jesus' lordship and he says this. He says, he is a light and a glory to the people of Israel. Exalting language. Then immediately when Simeon's done, Anna the prophetess comes up and she says that uh, she talks about all of the praises and all the things that he'll do. And it says, this is a direct quote, she talked about the child to everyone who'd been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. She started telling everyone about the child, exalting language. So we're going from anticipation as we near the Christmas season celebrating the birth of Christ, and then shift to exalting language only for the cycle to repeat itself all over. This should be, in a couple of chapters, we have the, the formula, the foundation for how our response to the Christmas season should be as modern-day Christians. Okay? And I know what you may be thinking, and I want to acknowledge a couple of things. Yes, but we're not waiting for the birth of Christ. True. We have Christ now. We have the opportunity to know him. We're not waiting for some foretold birth. But that's the point. If anyone should be more excited, if anyone should be more joyous, if anyone should be more exalting, it's us who are after the events that were foretold here. Because if they're that excited, then think of how much we've seen. At this point in time, God had done many miracles, but Jesus in flesh was a baby. We're thousands of years later and have seen thousands of years of miracles in human history and incredible moves of the Lord. We should be even more exalting, which brings us back to this idea of John 15. Because if we're looking forward to it, and if after we experience it, we're exalting him and praising him, carrying these things as Mary did in our hearts, it shouldn't be a quick return to normal. It shouldn't be Christmas is over and I got things to do. In the passage we read at the start of the message, the word abide is used 10 times. And if you were following along, we only read 11 verses. 10 times in 11 verses, and if you saw it in your Bible, perhaps you saw those words were in red. Those were the words of Christ himself, and I dare say that if Jesus ever said anything with such frequency, we ought to pay attention and seek to understand. 
And so when we look at the word abide, you know me, I love a good word study. It's the Greek word meno. It's the Greek word meno, M-E-N-O. That's the phonetic Americanized spelling of it. Of course, it's all sorts of Greek characters that I don't know. Uh, I'm not that smart. Uh, But this is what it means. I want to tell you what it means because there's a lot wrapped up in this word that we're going to dive into today. It means to stay, to tarry, to be present with, to be held by, to endure, to last, and I love this one, to remain as one. And so if we rewind and we think about the things that we read in John 15, 1 through 11, he's saying, remain in me. Be held by me. Be joined with me. That's what that means. So how do we capture the moment? How do we maintain the wonder and the joy and the appreciation and the exaltation of the Christmas season? We abide in Christ. That's what we should do the other 364 days of the year. Abiding in Christ. Staying as long as we can in this moment. So how do we do that? There's three things I want to talk about today. Three things that we can do to help us capture the moment and have this attitude, this hyper-focus on Christ year-round. The first thing that we need to do is slow down. The first thing we need to do is slow down. I dare say that one of the greatest problems in America right now is our need to go fast. Is our need to do as much as we possibly can, as many days of the year as we can. Right? When preparing for this message, I came across this focus group. It was an editorial in the Dallas Morning News. And there was a focus group that was hosted with different people talking about busyness in their lives. And there was a gentleman in the focus group, and he said that he had been working, get this, 72 hours per week. Because everyone around him was working that much. And in fact, he decided that he's going to cut back on sleep so that he can be even more productive. Nearly twice... The average work week, he's working per week and decided that he needed to cut back on sleep, a basic human function, to be more productive. There was a woman who said that the only alone time that she'd had in the past year was at her annual physical. Either in the waiting room or in the patient's room waiting on the doctor to be there. Finally, she can breathe and sigh and say, okay, I'm alone. There was another woman in the group who said, "Life." this, is her, this was her quote, Life is too hectic to ever have kids. These are the opinions and the attitudes of many. Arguably some in this room, this house today. We go and we do and we strive and we try. And where do you think, we can make this sort of a call and response, where do you think this focus group took place? Where do you think? Busyness at a fever pitch. What do you think? Los Angeles? New York, Atlanta, Denver? No, this focus group took place in Fargo, North Dakota. A little podunk town in the middle of nowhere. And what that illustrates to me is that busyness is not a big city problem. Busyness is not a business owner's or an entrepreneur's or forgive the use of this term, I couldn't come up with a better one, a soccer mom's problem. I don't mean that derogatorily, I assure you. It's an everyone problem. It's an everywhere problem. It tempts every single one of us. It's not a problem for the people outside the church. It's a problem for all of us. It's a temptation for everyone. Because the same researcher who went and tried to do this, she picked 
Fargo, North Dakota, because she thought maybe, just maybe, this is a place where busyness hasn't reached a fever pitch. And she was wrong. And she created this trend of sort of looking at busyness in America when she started analyzing holiday letters. And that's just a quirky little thing that I guess some researchers do, is just read all your mail all the time. But she started looking back at holiday letters, and this is what she noticed. She said words like hectic, whirlwind, consumed, crazy, and phrases like constantly on the run and way too fast started appearing for the first time in holiday letters in the 1970s and 1980s. And she now says that these words and phrases appear with incredible, astonishing frequency and regularity in our holiday letters. So I know I got some of those when I was growing up. Yeah, Timmy's doing this, and we're going here, and we've done this trip, and on the surface that seems great and like a full life. But what's lurking just beneath the surface is a schedule that's filled to the brim, that doesn't have any margin or any room. And busyness, unfortunately, church, has become a status symbol. The amount of things in a person's schedule shows you that they're successful, that they're accomplished. But when we look at Jesus, we see the polar opposite. Right? We see a man who operated at a pace much slower than we know today, and arguably that the people in his day knew. We never see him rushing. Well, that's, that's not true. We'll get to that in a second. We see him rushing one time. But even when his dear friend Lazarus is dying, not even that could prompt him to, to increase his pace. And so I want to show it to you. I know we're, we're probably familiar with it, but it's just so boggling to me to see how he tarries. In John chapter 11, so four chapters before, we see this, and we're going to be going out of the NLT for the remainder of this. I told you ESV for the opening, NLT for the remainder. But let's look at John 11, 1 through 6. Maybe. Anyway, all right, there we go. I was going to summarize it for you, but... So a man named Lazarus was sick. We know this. He lived in Bethany with his sisters Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume in the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. Focus on the word dear friend. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Not even a dear friend being on his deathbed could cause him to rush. He tarried. He stayed. You see, the thing about Jesus is that he understood his mission. And he filtered every would-be obligation through that filter. Does this align with what the Father has told me to do? Does this align with what the Father has told me to say? And if it didn't, he didn't pencil it in. He didn't jump to yes so that he could be successful and have the big to-do list and have all the followers and the fans. We never see him worried if someone's healing or deliverance is going to make him late to his next appointment. We never see him checking his watch or his day planner to say, do I have time for this? No, he met needs. He saw needs and he met needs. Unbothered and unhurried by the pace of the world around him. So too it should be for us. And in fact, I told you that we'd get to this. There's only one place. There's only one recorded piece of scripture where we see him rushing. Only one. And it's in Mark chapter 10 and I want to show it to you. 
Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 34 says this. They were now on the way up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were filled with awe, and the people following behind were overwhelmed with fear. Taking the twelve aside, Jesus once more began to describe everything that was about to happen to him. And we can stop there, but he begins to foretell all of these things. Look, it says that he was walking ahead of them. That's noteworthy for a reason, and even more noteworthy is the response of the people who were following him. The disciples, it said, were in awe, and the people around were amazed. They had never seen Jesus with such indistractable focus. And where was he going, church? To Jerusalem, the very place where he would be beaten and killed for us. That is the only thing that caused him to hurry, to do what he would do for us. Every other piece of scripture accounts for the fact that he was slow and intentional in his decision-making. So yes, rush to the things of God. When it is a thing of God, I want you to go for it. Hurry toward it. Rush to repentance. Forgive freely. Give greatly. Do those things as quick as you possibly can. Why? Because as we read in the opening verse, how do we abide? We abide in his love by keeping his commandments. That's a key piece. But for every other worldly obligation, church, I would encourage you to slow down. To slow down. Resist the temptation of busyness. And instead, let us choose to follow the intentional, unhurried example of Jesus. And this has actually led to a number of books that have been written recently. Jefferson Bethke wrote a book called To Hell with the Hustle. It was followed up by a book by John Mark Comer called uh, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And in that book, he talks about doing some different things to adopt the radical life-changing way of Jesus in the 21st century, because that's essentially what it is. It's radical. It doesn't make sense. I'm sitting here on a pulpit on a Sunday after Christmas telling you to slow down, and Monday you're going to wake up and the world's going to tell you everything opposite to that. Your alarm clock's going to start, and that's going to kick your day off, and the world's going to say, go, do, achieve, accomplish. But when we look at Jesus, it's opposite to that. And so John Mark Comer wrote this book, and he said, here's some games that you can play to slow your life down. And I'm using the term games loosely here. Uh, He says, one thing you can do is drive the speed limit. Go in the slow lane on the highway. He says, come to a complete stop at stop signs. Resist the urge to multitask, especially texting and driving. Show up early for your appointments. And leave your phone at home, or at least in your car, or at the very least in your pocket. And this one's crazy. Get in the longest line at the grocery store. (laughs) He talks about cutting things out of your schedule, trimming the fat and creating more margin, because the reality is, and I know this to be true of my life, if we are constantly going, if we are constantly busy, the first thing often that we will cut are the things of God. We will say that we, quote, don't have time for spiritual pursuits. I'm too busy to go to church. I didn't include this in my notes, but do you know that average church attendance has fallen below 50% for the first time in the recorded history of that statistic? 43%. 
43%. It has been consistently hovering around the 70s and 80s for a number of years, but over the past five to 10 years, it has taken a nosedive. You know what I argue to say? I haven't looked at the correlation, but I dare that... I dare to say that what has taken the upswing has been the amount of things that we're doing in our lives. And I know that it's true for me, and maybe it's true for you, that there are days when I rush through life at such a frenetic pace that I give God the very least and the very last. That I don't stop to pray until my head's on the pillow, and then as my mind starts to slow down, I'm asleep in seconds. I start to pray, but I can't even get to amen. Instead of giving God the first fruits, I give him the dregs, and even then I can't give him much. Shame on me and shame on us. We've got to do better. God is calling us to do better, not just to serve him, but to serve the people that are around us. How often do we see someone in need and bypass that opportunity because we're getting to the next thing, because we're constantly going? It's time for us as the church to slow down, to be intentional, to be unhurried, and to follow the example of Christ. The second thing we can do to capture the moment and stay here in this attitude of appreciation and exultation a little longer is to stop trying. Stop trying. This is another antithetical way of Jesus, something that bristles against the way that we live in modern America, and maybe you're going to see a pattern here. Because again, I'm telling you on a Sunday to stop trying, but the world on Monday is going to say, keep going. It's your own determination, your own grit, your own uh, abilities that are going to allow you to be successful. The things of God, the way of Jesus, is so backward to the life that we live. The way that we're tempted to live. You know, in in the kingdom of Jesus, this is what he says. He says, the last will be first. The least are the greatest. Blessed are who? The ones with the biggest paychecks? The fattest bank accounts? The speediest cars? The most full schedules? No. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The mourners the meek. I've heard writers and speakers call this the upside-down economy of Jesus, and I absolutely love that. Because the, the fact is, we don't get what we deserve. We get everything we don't deserve. And all it takes is us living a little differently. This is also not in my notes. Uh, we have been called, to, as, as a church, as Christians, to be a counterculture, to be countercultural to be fully different from the world, but what we have created over the past number of years is a subculture, a Christian subculture that looks just like the world, but with a Christian label in front of everything, right? And it's not all bad, right? I listen to Christian rock, but the fact is it's rock music with the word Christian in front of it. We've got to watch ourselves and ensure that we're, again, living up to that counter-cultural call of Christ, that upside-down economy of Jesus. And the way we do that is to stop trying. Stop trying so hard. Stop trying to make it work. Stop trying to do everything. And for the love of all that is good, stop trying to be like everybody else. Because here's the truth today. God didn't make you to be like anybody else. He made you to be you. And if I can take it one step further, everything you see in the world on social media, in advertisements, and on TV isn't real anyway. It's a waste of time. And again, I want you to think of the family Christmas photo example once more. It's sort of the central analogy for this message, right? Very few people are going to post ones like I selected here. 
They want the ones where everyone's smiling and looking at the camera. And if not, they hire a good photographer who can do face swapping and make it to where everyone's looking at the camera. And everyone's got the matching pajamas and the Santa hats, and everyone's looking cutesy. Very few people are going to post the ones where the dog's running at the camera. Very few people are going to post the one where the cat has just clawed the living goodness out of your hand. Or where mom and dad were arguing just before the photo was taken. Or the kids couldn't get off their phone but for long enough to take the picture and then are right back to it. That's not real life. Real life is messy. Right? At Covenant Life, one of our vision statements is that our vision is going to, we're going to be real, relational, and reaching. And so if we're going to be real this morning, life gets messy. Life gets very, very difficult. And I've learned in my 32 years of limited experience that it only gets more difficult when I try to do more than I was made to do. There the times when I'm trying to be more in control, the times when I'm trying to have my hand on everything and in everything, those are the times when I'm the most frustrated. The times when I'm at my angriest, my shortest fuse, my most negative thoughts in my, or to myself or my responses to those around me are when I'm trying my hardest to keep it all together, doing more than I can feasibly possibly do. And I can't even begin to tell you the amount of nights of sleep that I've lost worrying about things that were either well outside of my wheelhouse or firmly beyond my control. Because the reality is that control is an illusion. As Christians, it is time for us to stop trying. You may have heard the phrase, let go and let God. And that's cute, and we put it on bumper stickers, but I don't think we live it out. Because when we let go, we let go, and we step back, and we say, God, it's yours. But I know for me, I'm quick to say that or to pray that and then step right back in and be like, but in case you need me, God, I'm here. If you need an assistant, you know, if you could use my skill set, maybe I could just help you out with it. And I end up wrestling it back out. But the first step for us is admitting our frailty. It's admitting, it's knowing where our human abilities end and God's supernatural abilities shine. Right? It's us getting out of the limelight and out of the spotlight. Because, look, I'm going bu- to burst some bubbles this morning. And I assure you, I'm doing it just as much for you as I am for me. We cannot do it all. We as humans can't keep it all together. We can't. This was the big one for me. This is why I lost sleep. We can't keep everyone safe all the time. I lost so many nights of sleep because I was worried that someone would break into the house and hurt my children. That was the tape that kept playing over and over and over and over and over again. We should move it around. The kids' room shouldn't be at the front of the house. They should be at the back of the house. The windows, they need to have like locks on them or something crazy. This is what I would obsess over. And it wasn't until Caitlin and I, my wife and I, had a conversation where she says, what if? Right? So what if that happens? God's still good and God's still God. And that was such a radical thought to me. And at first, I want to, you want to react and be aghast. Like, oh, how could you say that? And she says, yes, it would be terrible. No, I don't want anything to happen to my children. But sitting here worrying about it night after night after night after night doesn't do any good. Especially when there's nothing that you can humanly do to prevent it. Church, we can't make every right decision. We cannot change hearts or minds or opinions. And again, we are never, ever, ever in control. And even when we think we are, even those moments where we kick back and we smile and we say, man, God, that was pretty easy. That just kind of fell together. That's awesome. 
are the times when he has allowed our will to align with his. We can't get it twisted. Every breath we breathe, every beat of our heart, we sang it today, right? It is all because of God. And there's some verses you may know, but I think it's worth reminding this morning. Romans 11:36. This is what it says, for everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen. All things. Not all things but the safety of my family. Not everything but the things that I want to do with my life. Not everything, God, except for the areas where I want to grow and thrive and get my fans and followers and build my own kingdom. No, everything exists for his power, by his power, and for his glory. Everything. Colossians 1.17. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Not Jordan holds all creation together. Not that talk show host you love so much, or that radio show host you love so much, or that politician. He Capital H-E, Jesus, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. He's the one who does it. We have to stop trying. And if you don't believe what maybe Paul wrote about God, let's look at what God himself said about himself way back in Isaiah. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. Look at this. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts. My ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than yours. How dare we think we can do better than God? Because the truth is, church, we can't do any of the things I just mentioned. Take care of our family, make the right decision, breathe without God. We can do none of it of our own volition. We need God to help us get through each and every day. To love our spouses and our significant others and our children and our co-workers and our bosses and the people who grind our gears. We can't love them without God. We need God to help us know what path to take and what door to open to when our finite and feeble minds, they all look sensible. I have prayed more on more than one occasion. This is silly, but I'm going to admit it to you. God, give me a neon sign. Like, make it abundantly clear because I'm a total moron sometimes and I just need you, God, to let me know which path to take. The truth is we can't do that without God. It'd be like herding cats. We'd just be like, that sounds good. That sounds good. That looks cool. I'm going to do that. We'd have a thousand hobbies that we'd abandon after two weeks. We'd never go anywhere. We need to rely on God. And so what I want to be clear here, because I think we can fall into some ditches here, so I want to clarify, fight for what's worth fighting for. When I say stop trying, I'm not saying you phone it in for the rest of your life. Jordan gave me the get out of jail free card. I don't have to do anything. Jordan said, I'm going to look back on 122621 and say, I don't have to do a thing. No, fight for what's worth fighting for. Remember what I said a moment ago, rush to the things of God. Do those. Spread the good news. Stand up for what's right. But for everything else in life, for all the trivial things over which you lose sleep or the things that you can't control anyway, just stop trying. Just stop. Again, you don't kick back and get lazy, but what it means is you realize that you can't do it on your own. And you recognize, acknowledge the benefits of total reliance on God. And so what I want to show you are the benefits and the total reliance on God. And Pastor John preached about this verse. It was central to an entire message that he preached come out of Matthew 11, 28 through 30. This is what it says. Then Jesus said, so again, the words of Christ, 
Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Notice he says we're yoked with him. The oxen in the yoke still do the work. Can I be clear? There's still work for us to do, church, but when we do it with a total dependence on and a reliance on Jesus, that work becomes easier. We don't have to try so hard. We don't have to stress so much. We don't have to toil and fit the square cube in the round hole. It just becomes easy. And so I've loved that verse, but late last year, early this year, I read this, this passage of Scripture for the first time out of the message. And I know the message is very divisive. Again, some translations are thought for thought, others are word for word. But I believe that any Bible scholar would attest to the significance of viewing verses in different translations so that you can better understand the meaning. And when I first discovered this in the message, I just fell in love with the way the language is said. And I'm, we're not going to put it on the screen, but I want to recite it to you. And this, again, is the word of Jesus. Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live church freely and lightly. And again, I don't know about you, but I've felt that way before. Tired, worn out, burned out, keeping up appearances, keeping up with the Joneses, trying to make sure that I was living right in every single little area and keeping all the pieces together, right? Slipping coasters under everybody's cup at my house, trying to do everything that I could possibly do as one person and even more so. But again, it's that backward economy, that upside-down economy of Jesus that says, when you work with me, when you stop trying so much and instead rely on me and follow my example, that's when it gets easier. That's when you discover a free and light life. When you discover, I love the phrase, the unforced rhythms of grace, that's the benefit that's the benefit to not trying so hard, church. We got to let go, we got to let God, and we really got to step back. Do the work that needs to be done, but rely on God every step of the way. Quit taking it into our own hands. And there's two sides to that coin. And so our last point today, and the other side to this coin, is that in addition to stop trying, we've got to start trusting. We've really got to start trusting. Part of letting go and not trying to be the masters of our own destiny means that we're trusting God. By not doing so much, by fighting back against the urge to be in control every moment of every day, we start to loosen the grip on the reins of our lives. And we start to trust God more. And there are countless verses in the Bible about trusting God. Uh, Perhaps the most well-known is Proverbs 3 and 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. With all your heart. With every iota of your being, trust God. But there are countless others that I want to focus your attention on that use a different word. They use the word wait or waiting. And these, for me, it's such a perfect connection to that idea of abiding, to tarry, 
to linger with, waiting on God, waiting with God. And so for me, I think that trusting God is just about, or just as much, right, knowing he's in control, knowing that he's got, I don't have to try so hard because God's got this, as it is waiting and ensuring that my life and my decision-making aligns with his perfect timing. To know that when he tells you, let's be honest, that when he tells you how to do something, that maybe the God who created everything just might know the best way of doing it. And so I want to show you three verses, and then I'm going to tell you the context, because I think it's important to understand the message and then the context to show why waiting on God is so important. So the first one comes out of Psalm, Psalm 27, 14. And so this is what David writes. Wait patiently for the Lord. Be brave and courageous. Yes, wait patiently for the Lord. All right, so this, again, is, is sort of the substitution for trust. Trust God, be brave and courageous, right? David wrote this in the midst of his flight from King Saul. In the midst of persecution, in the midst of difficulty, he says there's benefit to waiting on God. There's incredible benefit to trusting God. And in doing so, you can find yourself being brave and courageous when you otherwise wouldn't be. Isaiah 30. This is Isaiah's prophecy here. It says, so the Lord must wait for you to come to him so he can show you his love and compassion. For the Lord is a faithful God. Blessed are those who wait for his help. And this is Isaiah's prophecy over the disobedience of Israel. He's telling them all the things they're doing wrong, and then you know what? He pivots, and he says, but there's a future deliverance coming for you. And if you'll just hold on, if you'll just trust, if you'll just wait, you'll receive all that he has for you. There's beauty in waiting and trusting God. And the last one here, we're going to go all the way back to Exodus. It doesn't use the word wait, but again, it's a substitution, this idea of trust and abiding in God. Uh, Exodus 14, 14, this is what it says. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. And guess what? This is Moses talking to the people as Pharaoh and his army are hot on their tail. They're gone into utter calamity and saying, we were better off in Egypt. And this is what he responds with. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. And it's just as true for us now as it was millennia ago. The Lord will fight for you. He will. Just stay calm. Just trust. Wait on the Lord. Know that he's in control. Part of maintaining that attitude of Christmas time, that joyful anticipation, that exultation, that excitement, is knowing that God is faithful. Amen. We sang about it this morning. Great is thy faithfulness. That comes right out of Lamentations. His compassions are new each day. Great is thy faithfulness. He will come through. Amen. But only when we slow down, we let go of the reins and stop trying, and we trust that he knows what he's doing. Timmy, would you come and play? I'd be remiss if I didn't say this because we talked about trusting God is knowing that eventually he'll show up, knowing that his way truly is the right way. But I know that some of you may be dealing with difficulty. You may be going through a difficult season. You say, Jordan, I do not want to stay in Christmas mode. It sounds like rainbows and butterflies for you, man, but that's not my life. 
You may be dealing with a difficult diagnosis. You know, Pastor John alluded to the fact that many people are sick. Many people are hurting today. Many people in need of God's touch and God's healing. And so to you, I want to say, God sees you. And you're not alone. And that's part of trusting God too, is holding on and trusting Him even when it hurts. Because I've been there before. I've had some seasons of difficulty. I've had some times when I didn't know God was going to show up. Right? I mean, for all of us, the past couple of years have been really, really difficult. But God is faithful. And God is just. And if there's one thing I know of God is that he will take the brokenness and turn it into something beautiful. He has used every difficult thing that I have ever been through and turned it into something so miraculous. The moments that I was at my lowest, he's turned into my greatest testimonies. The battles that I thought I lost, he showed me how instead I really won. And so if you're saying, Jordan, I don't want Christmas time to last, just hold on. Slow down. Stop trying. And trust God. Will you stand with me, church? I don't know about you, but I don't want a speedy return to the hustle and bustle. I really don't. You know, in early 2020, when the world shut down, that is the happiest I've ever been. And it's so crazy because there was calamity and there was disease and there was death and there was a lack of answers and a lack of direction and confusion. And for the first time in my life, and this is totally true, for the first time in my life, I wasn't worried. I've had a history of panic attacks and throughout the pandemic, I never had one panic attack. opportunity for me to do all the things that I'm telling you today. I had no excuses, right? We had no excuses. If I wanted to do something, I couldn't because everything was shut down. And it was an opportunity for me, and I hope for you, to see that a simpler, easier way of living is possible. And I know we've returned to normalcy in a lot of areas, but that way of living, that trusting God and having that peace in the midst of difficulty is not out of reach. We can still have it. We can still experience it. We can still hold it. And yes, it may look differently. And yes, it's more on us now. We've got to make some decisions. The world's not shut down. The world's not saying, no, you stay home. We've got to make those choices for us. So my intent is not to have an altar call this morning because I think that the response to this message doesn't happen in the altar. It doesn't happen with a singular prayer. It happens with the decisions that we make collectively. It starts when we leave here. And I know, I know, stores are reopening. You got that gift, you got to return. Grandma gave you another sweater. But just slow down. Don't rush. Some of you I know have to return to work and you've got family obligations and you've got things you've got to do. But I implore you, choose the way of Christ that is not one of a full to-do list and a busy schedule. 
that's not one of trying to do it all of your own volition and by your own strength. And it's not one of thinking that you can't trust Him. So wherever you go when we leave here, I'll pray, we'll be dismissed. Wherever you go and whatever you do, let your decision-making align with the word that we've heard today and the example of our Lord and Savior. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for this season. We thank you that this is the one time of year that whether they know it or not, everyone fixates on you. Your name is in the holiday. And for those of us who believe, God, we know that there is more. And so we've celebrated yesterday and today we're back in church and I pray that we don't quickly return to life as normal. I pray, God, that as your word says, that we would choose to abide in you to sit in your lap, to linger with you, to know that that is the solution, that is the remedy, that is the answer to everything that we could encounter is time spent with you. And I pray that another day, week, month, year wouldn't pass of us being tired and weary and worn out the burdens that we've carried, God, I pray we lay them at your feet and we walk away. God, allow us to slow down, to stop trying so hard, to stop hitting our head against the wall and figuring why we can't make everything work. God, we were never intended to make it all work. You're the one who holds it together. You're the one who gives us this very breath. God, I pray that every heart and soul in this house can attest right now to your goodness. That at the mention of trusting you, God, we can each recall and remember some incredible move. A divine healing, a relationship restored, a bill that shouldn't have been paid, but that somehow was. God, when the pieces came together, not because of what we did, but because of what you and only you could do. And let that be what propels us forward the conviction, the belief that you are capable, that you are stronger. God, I pray that our decisions, our choices, our schedules, our hopes and our dreams and our aspirations for 2022 align with your word, that we would take this time to draw a line in the sand, to plant a stone and to say no more. simultaneously celebrate all that you've brought us through. The victories, the triumphs, the peace that we've experienced. And at the same time, to chart a course for the future that says, God, I want a different life. That if that easiness is possible, that lightness, that freedom is possible, God, I want it. God, we thank you what you'll do in our lives, in the lives of our families. And I pray that we're changed 
as a result of this service today. God, lead us as we go. Bless us. Keep us in your presence, God. And allow us to tarry and to linger there for as long as possible. We thank you for everything. As we read today, everything comes from you. We thank you for those gifts. We thank you for those blessings. We thank you for what the season means. For those encountering difficulty, I pray that you would show up and show out in their lives. That you'd intervene in a supernatural way. That you'd bring healing, restoration, and wholeness. God, we thank you and we're in awe of you today. It's in your name. It's because of your graciousness. Because of your glory that we pray. that you have been blessed and inspired by today's Covenant Living broadcast. To find out more information about our ministry, just visit our website at www.covenantlifewestga.org. You can find this video there on our homepage. Just click the YouTube button and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. And give us a call at 770-537-3747. That's 770-537-3747. At Covenant Life, our mission is to go and make disciples by being real, relational, and reaching. Be sure to join us next week for more Covenant Living with Pastor John Butler.